there are times in our life where things seem to be going right, things seem to be going well, we seem to be in a good place, but one little thing can snowball, and while it doesn't seem like it's going to take you out early, as it builds and builds and builds, that one little thing can turn into something bigger down the road and completely derail you. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thanks for a chance to dig into your word, uh, to understand your plan. And God, I'm so thankful for the timing of this message tonight, what we're going to be talking about from the third chapter of 1 Kings. God, I just pray that it resonates with us and that you open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So where we left off is Solomon is on the throne. His enemies have been taken care of. And now we get into some of the early portions of Solomon's reign and his interaction with God. So, starts out with, now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. So we start out with Solomon kind of learning some of the things that David did wrong. Now Solomon at this point loves God. We'll find that out in a couple of verses. But he's acting like the rest of the world. This is what other kings did in, in the region, in the Middle East. In order to, for a peace treaty and peace to exist between two different nations, they would basically... Um, send their daughter to a neighboring king, basically to say, my blood exists in your royal family. That is a, a sign between us that we will not attack each other. And Solomon plays along. Now, there's no reason for Solomon to do this. There wasn't war encroaching at his border. There wasn't a lot of crazy battles happening. There wasn't mistrust. It was a time of peace. But Solomon does, A, what David did, because David had this practice as well. And secondly, what the world did, this was how kings acted in the region at that time. And so he's following the example of the world, not the example of God. And while it doesn't seem like a big deal, he's just kind of doing what everybody does. As we go through the rest of Solomon's life, 
you'll see how this ends up breaking him down later. And that's often how this goes, right? Solomon has good intention. He loves God. He does very well at the beginning of his reign. And there are times in our life where things seem to be going right, things seem to be going well, we seem to be in a good place. But one little thing can snowball. And while it doesn't seem like it's going to take you out early, as it builds and builds and builds, that one little thing can turn into something bigger down the road and completely derail you. And this is kind of what happened with Solomon. And it starts right away. Verse 2. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. So, actually, I'm going to read verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father and David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So what do you see? The people are offering sacrifices and they're worshiping in high places. Now this, if you don't understand what's happening, part of the pagan culture, especially in this region at that time, was if you wanted to connect with a deity, you would, ele- you would go to an elevated place so that you would be closer to heaven. This is sort of their mind process. This is not biblical. In fact, these people worshipped at the tabernacle all throughout the desert with the tabernacle taking it with them. You know, God did not ask to be put on a high place. He did not ask to be put on a mountain. God was with them wherever they went. This was a pagan idea to get closer to the deity. And the people are sort of following the example of the nations around them, and Solomon falls into this trap as well. Almost as if he thinks he needs to get up to the high places to get closer to God. Now, again, a small thing, he's still worshiping God, but this snowballs in the nation as once you take in a practice from the nations around you who worship false gods, and you attribute it to your God, it just opens you up to later having a lot of trouble because you've already started taking in some of the practices of the false worship. And so I I kind of think about this in the church as there's churchianity and there's Christianity. And a lot of times we attribute faith to churchianity. We've done this. We've had this tradition forever. This has always been part of our service. This has always been part of my faith. And it's, I feel fulfilled doing this because it's how it's always been done rather than actually what is biblical or what is God actually asking of me? What does Christ really desire from me? And this is the case here. This is what the people are doing and this is what Solomon is doing. It even notates specifically that Solomon loved God. And then it makes one exception. He sacrificed to him and burnt incense at the high places. So you know this is going to trip him up sooner or later. Verse 4. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So you see, he's going to worship and he's going to this great high place in Gibeon. And so he's following a bad practice, but he's still trying to connect with God. And interestingly, God connects with Solomon in the middle of his issue. He's doing something wrong. He's doing something he shouldn't be doing. 
but God still meets Solomon where he's at. This is akin to the nature that God has. This is like Jesus talking to the woman at the well. She is in the middle of a sinful life. She's rejected by her peers. She's rejected by the Jews because she's a Samaritan. She's rejected by the Samaritans because of her lifestyle. And the fact that she's had five husbands and now she's living in adultery with someone who isn't her husband. And Jesus goes and meets her at the well. God goes connects and connects with Solomon in the middle of him doing something that's already an exception to his love for God. God meets him where he is at. That is how Jesus treated people when he was on earth as well. So verse 6, Solomon said, oh, I'm sorry, verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? So God comes to Solomon in the middle of this issue that he has, worshiping in the high places, and he comes face to face with God. And God tells him in a dream, Ask me what you want. I'm going to give it to you. And so Solomon says, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in the truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of the heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him his son to sit on this throne. As it is this day, now, O Lord God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or be counted. So here's Solomon's dilemma. The people have this issue where they think they need to go to a particular place to worship God. They need to go to the highest elevation to get as close to God as possible. Now, one of the things I'm excited about is we're sort of moving beyond this building is understanding that the building is not the church. The people are. God is worshipped wherever you are, just like the tabernacle traveled with the Israelites all throughout the desert. But while he's there, while Solomon is there, still falling into the same trap as the people, God confronts him and he says, what do you want? Solomon's response is incredible to me. He says, God, you showed great mercy to my dad, to David. But you've put me in his place. You've put me on the throne. I'm just a kid. I don't know anything. When's the last time you met a young man who is willing to admit they don't know what they're talking about? I haven't. As a youth pastor, I can tell you, those guys don't exist. Every teenage man thinks he knows everything. But Solomon admits it. He says, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's so many people counting on me. What do I do? And so verse 9, he says, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? So his request is, there's all these people counting on me. I'm too young to really know what I'm doing. And you were so good to my father, David. God, give me a heart that listens to you. Give me a heart that can discern between good and evil as I'm making judgments for the people so that I can lead them appropriately. That's Solomon's desire. He could have asked for 
anything. And that's what he chooses. God's response is, The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for life for yourself, you have asked riches for you have not asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but you have asked yourself understanding and discern justice. So God is saying, You didn't ask for wealth, you didn't ask for a long life, you didn't ask for your enemies to be taken out. What you asked for is to be able to understand good and evil and justice for the people. He says, Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. So God says, I'm going to give you what you asked for. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he says, not only only am I going to give you what you asked for in in wisdom, I'm going to give you a long life, I'm going to give you wealth and riches. All I'm asking for you to do is act like your father David. Just Stay in my commandments and act like David. So what is God really saying? Because we know how David lived. We know David didn't always follow God's example. He didn't always do everything to the letter of the law. David made a lot of mistakes. But what separated David from Saul was that when David was confronted with his mistakes, he repented and had a change of heart and he was always humble. In fact, there were times when David was doing the right thing and people confronted David and attacked him. And David's response was, maybe God is trying to correct me. So don't harm the person that's trying to correct me. Even though David was in the right and that person was in the wrong. David was so humble, he was willing to take criticism even when the criticism was wrong. And so he's saying, act like David. So then Solomon awoke, and indeed, it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Here's the thing about Solomon. He asked for wisdom to judge the people righteously. And Solomon is often called the wisest man who ever, ever lived. We get a glimpse of his wisdom as we finish up this chapter, but Solomon's wisdom was also his Achilles heel because Solomon always wanted to understand why. He wanted to understand what was best and what was the purpose behind everything. He was thinking deeper. So as much as he judged and discerned for other people, and helped them make the wise decision. For himself, he wanted to test everything and understand why. That is the entire book of Ecclesiastes. You will see Solomon writing about all of the things he went after and tried to experience. He tried to experience every type of fleshly pleasure that he could. He had the most women at his I don't know what the word is to use there, but he 
<laughs> disposal, I guess, is a good word. Um, kind of crass, but he could do whatever he wanted with women and as many of them as he wanted. There were over a thousand in his harem. He had unlimited wealth. He experienced every type of pleasure and food and gluttony and everything that the flesh could indulge in, he indulged in. And he writes down his experiences in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he comes down ultimately to this conclusion as he's talking about everything that he goes through and everything that he experiences and all of the temporary pleasures that he gets from it. And he says, everything is meaningless. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new to experience. Everything is meaningless in just chasing after the wind when you're chasing after fleshly pleasure. What is different is what is above the sun and living life with a purpose and following God. And that's his ultimate conclusion after chasing after wisdom. And so he goes through all of this pain and meaninglessness to discover the truth that already existed, that God had already told everybody through Moses. But this is Solomon. And he does good for others, but chases after pleasure for himself to understand the great depth of the human condition and what life is all about. Then let's get into Solomon's wisdom in practice. And this is a story that, you know, honestly, before I was a Christian, I had heard this story and I had no idea it was from the Bible. I had just heard this as some, I thought it was some sort of like myth or wives tale or thing that you, you tell people. Um, and so I had heard this story and I was shocked when I first started reading the Bible and found out that this is where the story was from. So I, w I didn't think that this would be that kind of story, but it is. So it says, now two women, this is verse 16. Uh, now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened, uh, the third day after I had given birth, this woman also gave birth. Uh, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. So here's the deal. There's two women. They're both prostitutes. Because of their job, they have gotten pregnant. Um, at the same time, they had babies within three days of each other, uh, and they were by themselves. They weren't married. They didn't have anyone else in the house. And so they're basically setting it up for Solomon as there's no witnesses. Basically, what you're about to hear is she said, she said. Just you're going to have to pit one word against another and make a wise judgment out of this. There's no way for you to tell the truth. It's just one, what one person says and what another person says, and you have to figure it out because there's no way. There's, there's no way to verify who is being honest. He said, and this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. So she's saying, both of us had kids. We were living together. There's no one else there. She rolled over on her son in the middle of the night and killed him. And then she replaced him with my son and gave me her dead son. And when I woke up in the morning, 
I thought my son was dead, but then I realized it wasn't my son. She had stolen my son from me. So the other woman says, no. But the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no. The dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So now you have this. There's no witnesses. Both women are claiming that the the kid who's alive is theirs. And they're pointing the finger at each other. And they're saying, this son is mine. This is a big deal. Because neither of them are married. This boy grows up. This is going to be outside of prostitution. The only way that they have to survive. Because he will be the earner and take care of their mothers. right? So this is beyond... Not only is this emotional and I love my kid, this is also their livelihood that they're arguing over because of the way that the culture was at the time. And so Solomon is there listening to this story with no way to verify who is telling the truth. And so the king says, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. And the other one says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. So Solomon sums it up. And the king says, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. Let's stop for a moment. Let's picture this so you can get a real glimpse of what's happening. There are two women, completely distraught, arguing for their livelihood. There's a lot of emotion in the room. Solomon has just summed up their long story in one sentence. And then he says, bring me a sword. And we don't know how long it takes for someone to get, we don't know if it was in the room, someone, but there's an awkward pause before anything happens. Imagine the glances that are happening in this moment while they're waiting for Solomon to get a sword, having no idea why this guy wants a weapon. Just waiting for his judgment. Meanwhile, they don't have the most upright life, and they're going before a king, and he's asking for a weapon. This is an awkward moment. And the king says, divide the living child into two and give half to one and half to the other. He says, kill him. Give them each half. And so the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other one said, let him neither be mine nor yours, but divide him. And so the king answered, give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment by which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So Solomon, in the midst of not being able to verify who's telling the truth, he's got emotion and livelihood on the line. He's got two women with not a lot of prospects in front of him, begging for their lives and their livelihood. And so he goes to human nature and he he hopes and he knows that distinct act of a mother knows the love of a mother will win and so he makes a threat against the life of the son to see who will be the one to protect him because he knows that's what a mother would do and that's how he makes his judgment So this is the wisdom of Solomon. And he starts off really good. 
He gets a lot of stuff from God, but as much as I think that wisdom story is great, and as much as I think it's, it's amazing that Solomon had the sound mind to think to himself, as a young man who had just been given everything, he'd been given the kingdom at its, its peak, at its supposed peak, because actually it reaches its peak under Solomon, but the kingdom is united, it's peaceful, it's just been under the reign of David for 40 years, so religiously it's at its best, They're at, it's at its most righteous, there's peace between the borders, the land has expanded, this is as good as it gets for Solomon, and while everything is being handed to him on a silver platter, he doesn't ask for more, he's not greedy, he simply says, help me be a good judge of the people. And so we see Solomon in a very good spot in his life and doing very well. What I think is the important thing to zone in on is what's not going well because it's easy to miss it when someone looks that good. Solomon has two big mistakes. He is, it's really one mistake. He is copying the world. He is copying the world in that he is marrying a woman for political purposes and he's engaging in polygamy, which is against God's design. And that will trip him up later because he's marrying someone. Not only is he going to be involved in polygamy, he is marrying women who do not have the same values or belief system as him. And this will be a real problem for him down the road because of his love for his wives, he will indulge their belief systems and create havoc in Israel. And the second thing is the worship part where the people are copying the world and worshiping in high places thinking they need to get to an elevated place to connect with God, which also mimics the false worship systems that his wives will be a part of, making it that much easier for him to lead Israel astray later on. And this is so relevant to where we're at because the building, as many special things have happened here, this is not, it's not because of the building. It's because of the worship that took place here. It's because of who was worshipped here, not because of the bricks and mortar. And so, if there's one thing to learn from, from this, wherever two or more are gathered, right, God is there. And so the church can exist and meet with God wherever we go, because it's who we worship, not where we worship. And if if Solomon had understand, understood that, a lot of mistakes could have been avoided. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this chapter on wisdom. Thank you for the good things to learn from Solomon, to be humble enough to know that we need your guidance and your discernment to help us make wise judgments. But help us not overlook the weaknesses, the small things that can trip us up later if we don't address them. Solomon didn't help us to learn from that, help us to deal with the small things so they don't trip us up later. 
so that we can continue on a trajectory towards you and to lead people to you to praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.